awesome worship we've experienced this morning. As Joe said, I've known Joe for quite a while and have known your pastor Dan for several years as well. And I think it speaks well to have known both of your staff members, of, both of these staff members of your church for so long and still be invited to come and, and stand before you today and proclaim the word. I think it speaks more about their spirits of grace and forgiveness than it does about anything that's good in me. So that's for sure. But I'm mean, delighted to get to be with you this morning. I want to share with you this morning about renewing a passion for the God of this city. Because it seems like more and more people in our society today are losing our passion for God. I want to tell you three stories to begin. The first story is a story of a man by the name of Dr. David Young. David Young is the chair of the Department of Civil Engineering for the University of North Carolina in Charlotte, North Carolina. I had the privilege of serving as Dr. Young's pastor for several years. And in one occasion, when he had returned from a trip to England, he pulled me aside and he said, Phil, I want to share this story with you of what happened to me while I was over in London. He said, I was there for about a week or so. Dr. Young specializes in forensics engineering. So he goes into buildings that have collapsed or in trouble or weak, and he tries to find out the engineering problems that were wrong that are causing them to have such structural defects. And while he was over in London, he was studying the effects of civil engineering upon their buildings and their structures because according to Dr. Young, their engineering techniques and some of their architecture techniques were about 50 years ahead of where we are or were at that time in some, some principles in, of engineering. And so he'd been in London for a couple of weeks studying uh, some of the engineering feats there and doing some forensic studies. And what he would do in his spare time is he would tour London. He would try to get to know the city and the culture a little bit. And over a series of days, he became friends with his tour guide because it was the same tour guide every day. And they became good friends. And so as the weekend approached, Dr. Young looked at his tour guide and he said to him, he said, can you point me to a church where I can worship on Sunday? And the tour guide said, well, I've shown you all of the great cathedrals that we have here in our city. Dr. Young said, yeah, I know. I've seen those great cathedrals. He said, most of them are pretty much preserved as museums and, and you know, tourist attractions now. I'm, I'm looking for a local community church where I can worship. And the tour guide looked at him. He said, not with a tone of antagonism, not with any kind of a tone of, of opposition or anything, but just, he said, a very simple tone of indifference. And he looked at Dr. Young and he simply said, Why? And Dr. Young said, well, because worship is important to me and to my family. It's an important part of our lives. He said, again, the tour guide who had become his friend just simply looked at him and said, why? And they began to engage in a little dialogue about why worship was important to them as a family. And he said, toward the end of the dialogue, the tour guide looked at him and said this. He said, Dr. Young, you've said to me that you came here to our city to study our engineering because our engineering principles were about 50 years ahead of where you were in the United States. He said, I predict, and I say to you right now, that in 50 years, your country will be where we are spiritually. And nobody will care there either. Dr. Young said that to me, and he said, Phil, when he, when, he said, when he spoke those words to me, he said, it just sent chills through me to think, have we become that indifferent? Have we become that apathetic? Have we become that passionless 
about our God and about his work in and through our lives as the people of God. Another story is not an international story on the scenes of other countries. It's about our country here in the United States. You might have seen some of the most recent research that's been released. It's just come out in the last few weeks. George Barna, who is one of the leading researchers of church activity and spiritual activity in the United States and literally places across the world, reports that 28% of adults have not attended any church or any church activities within the last six months. That equates to about 65 million people in the United States that say across the last six months that they have not attended any church or any church activity. Barna says that if you add in the children probably living in their homes that are 18 and under living in those homes, that that number could easily swell to about 100 million people. If that figure alone was a nation unto itself, it would be the 12th most populous nation on earth. That ought to alarm us a little bit, but here's what's interesting about that. 53%, over half of those who responded that they had not attended any church activity over the last several years, over half of those were once associated with a church. So one out of every two that responded that way at one time were, were connected with a church family, a, a community of faith, a body of, of believers and followers of Christ. The University of Chicago has a national opinion research poll, and what they have shared is that when asked those who have never attended a church of any kind or form ever in their entire life, that in 1970, that number was about 15% here in the U.S., and in 2009, it had grown to about 22%. I'll just tell you that to show you the direction that it's moving, the direction that those numbers are moving. The latest research out by Tom Rayner and his son have done some research on the millennials, those born between 1980 and 1999. How many of the 1980 to 1999? You were born during that time. Quite a few of you. In your generation, it is projected that the numbers could be as high as 85% of your peers of your generation would not identify themselves as a believer, a Christian, a follower of Christ in some way. Now, what, what is encouraging in that figure is of those 15% of you in that generation who, who are identified as followers of Christ, you know what we're seeing? We're seeing that some of you are the most devoted, some of the most committed, some of the most passionate believers that the world has seen in recent history. And that's encouraging. But when we look at that story on the broad scale, we see that was the tour guide who spoke to my friend, Dr. David Young, was he... Was he prophetic as we see the numbers across the United States? The third story is my own. Because just as I hear that story of the tour guide in London giving the prophecy about the U.S. and I see the statistics pointing us in that direction as a nation, I think how easy it would be for us to become passionless about our God and about his work and his people. Because it's been about 12 to 15 years ago now that I was beginning to feel the passion just drain from my spirit about God and his work and through his people. I was pastoring a church, preaching every Sunday, involving the church in activities, doing, doing everything that I could. But my wife would, would be quick to tell you that, 
the passion was just beginning to ooze out of my body because I was watching and seeing all of the activity that we were doing and wondering how much of that had meaning and purpose to it. Personally, I was growing very weary of what seemed like a a treadmill of activity without any kind of impact or or life change taking place. And I can remember at the height of my frustration, somewhat, you know, crying out to God, God, if, if this is all that your church is about, if this is all that the church is ever going to be, I, I, can't, I can't do this for the rest of my life. And I found myself at that point of almost becoming frightened personally to think, Am I going down that road of passionless existence when it comes to God and and his work in his kingdom? And it it scared me. My wife could sense that in me. And and as I was getting ready to load up a a team of people to go to Brazil for one of our very first mission experiences that we ever encountered there a little over 10 years ago, She sensed my frustration. She sensed my despair. And she gave me a book and she said, when you get on the plane, why don't you read this book? She said, I've just read it. There may be something in here that will help you. You know, I don't know. She said, I'm not even really sure what all you're you're feeling or dealing with, but just read the book. It might, it might help you. And so here I was, a, a kind of a passionless follower of Christ trying to be a good pastor. And I loaded everybody up on the plane. We were headed off to Brazil and I got everybody settled into their seats. And once everybody was there and we began the long nine, 10 hour flight internationally, I settled in and I pulled the book out that she had given to me. And I opened the front book and there in the fly leaf of the book cover was the passage of Isaiah 61 verses one through four. And I began to read those passages. And when I finished reading it on the fly leaf, I pulled my Bible out just to make sure that they had printed it correctly. And I went to my Bible and I began to look at Isaiah 61, one through four. And for the remainder of the trip, I never read another page of the book. In fact, it was only about two years later that I finally went back and read the book as fulfilled the promise to my wife. But for that entire trip and for the weeks that would, and months that would come after that, God locked me on to Isaiah 61, one through four. It's like he wouldn't let me turn loose of it. And he wouldn't let that turn loose of me. And he locked me on to that particular passage of scripture and began to use that to reignite my passion for the God who is the God of this city and and the cities across our nation. There's a fourth story that's to be told, but I can't tell it this morning because it's your story. It's the story that God's working in and through every single one of your lives. And only you know what that story looks like right now in the chapter that you're living today. Maybe you're at that point as well to where you're beginning to raise questions. God, what's this all about? But the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 61, the first four verses, gives us a great glimpse of what it is to have passion for the God who is the God of the city. Prophet said these words, the, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he, the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, 
and to comfort all who mourn. To provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The the oil of gladness instead of mourning. And a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. When God began to to lock me onto that passage, one of the things he began to reveal to me that started to refuel and to renew my passion for the God who is not only the God of this city, but the God of cities across the world was this, that our passion for him begins to, to be renewed when we recognize that this is a prophetic message about Jesus Christ. Jesus himself stood in the temple early in his ministry. Luke 4 records that for us, and he read from this very passage from the scroll of Isaiah. And after finishing reading that, he folded up the scroll, the scripture says, and he sat down and he said, today, this passage is fulfilled in your hearing. And so as this passage points us to Christ, it it reminds us, it renews the passion in us because it tells us this, that when we recognize that Christ accomplishes everything in us, that we are powerless or unable to do ourselves. See, we we go through our life trying to to make our lives good, trying to make our lives new, trying to make our lives right, trying to make our lives productive, trying to make our lives effective. We've got more things written today about how to live productive, meaningful, effective lives than, than we can possibly consume in a lifetime. But what this passage reveals to us is that when we recognize that it is Jesus Christ in us, that accomplishes in us and, and for us what we cannot possibly accomplish on our own. This word was spoken first to the, to the Jewish people who understood what it was to, to live lives of, of hopelessness and frustration. And just as I found myself in that particular point, people across America seem to be finding themselves there. People across the world would identify themselves as hopeless or, or just kind of going through the motions of life. Imagine what the Jewish people were thinking after they had experienced captivity. I mean, they knew oppression, they knew the pain of it, they knew the discouragement of it, the despair of it. They knew kind of what it was to just be numb to life and just to try to exist. And in that numbness, in that just simple existence of life, it's like the prophet steps into their life and says, listen, this is what I want to tell you. One is coming who has been anointed. That word anointing means not just with the anointing of the oil, but one who is sent. One who has been sent out for a purpose. He said, there's one who has been sent into our lives to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. To heal the brokenhearted. Those of you who who experience the pain of that brokenheartedness, there's one coming who can heal that. There's one coming who can release you from any of the captivity that you might experience in your life, whatever that might be. If you feel bound, restricted, constrained, unable to break free, there's one who has come who can do that for you. There's one who's come to release you from the darkness of prison. If it's like I can't even see my way in this world any longer. There's one who has come that when he is in you, gives that light to help you find your way. And that promise was coming to those who, who could not do this themselves. While it was certainly a spiritual implication for them, it wasn't just a spiritual implication for them. 
It was a spiritual promise for them that brought forth practical impact upon their lives and thus through their lives into their community. And when we begin to understand that in this search for meaning and purpose and direction and hope in our lives today, that when we find, try to find it in different places and we come up another dead end, that there is one who has been sent to us who can bring that to our lives. And that, when we begin to understand it, starts to re- reignite that passion in us for, for this God. Our passion also gets reignited, kind of gets refueled, kind of gets renewed when we have that personal experience of a Christ who changes our lives from the inside out. See, the prophet went on to say, not only does he heal the brokenhearted and set free the captive and give sight to the blind, he says this, he said, there's one coming who will take you from sackcloth and ashes to wearing a crown of beauty. There's one coming who will take you from being anointed with the oil of mourning to being just drenched with the oil of gladness. There's one coming who will take off that robe of despair and put upon you garments of praise. There is one who has been sent into your life that will completely bring transformation to your life and change you from one creation to a brand new one. And that's the promise that he's given us. When we begin to understand that that's the promise we have in our lives, that's the kind of new creation we can become, that restores a hope and re- renews a, an energy and an enthusiasm in us for living this life that we have in Christ. Sackcloth and ashes, the oil of mourning, and the garment of despair were all signs that indicated death. All signs that indicated grieving and mourning, hopelessness, crown of victory, the oil of of gladness, the garments of praise all indicate life and celebration. And the promise that the prophet gives to us is that when we experience this personal encounter with Jesus Christ in our life and he becomes real in us, we are transformed into something brand new. From that which is completely indicative of death and hopelessness to that which is completely indicative of of life and celebration. And that's the kind of change that takes place in our lives. It's revealed very beautifully in Paul's writings to the church in Ephesus. When he writes in the second chapter of Ephesians about what it is to be transformed from one who is dead to one who is life. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes this. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. He says, all of us lived like this at one time, gratifying the the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest of, of people, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us through Christ Jesus. 
For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not by works so that any of you can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Do you see the complete transformation that he promises when he comes into our lives and we have that personal encounter? See, the promise is not that Jesus Christ came and, and, and died upon the cross and God raised him back to life again, not just to make bad people good. He did that to make dead people alive. And that's the kind of transformation that takes place. That's what happens in and through our lives. And when we begin to embrace that or experience that personal relationship with him in that way, it begins to renew that passion for him again. Because it's not just accomplishing something in us that any social reformer can do. It's accomplishing in us something that only a Messiah can do. That passion is reignited in us again when we also begin to understand that God works a promise of power and purpose in our lives, unlike anything or anyone else. See, he accomplishes his work in us and then through us. The prophet Isaiah said that you will become oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. My family and I often enjoy vacationing in South Carolina, just off the coast of Charleston. And as we make our way to the island there, there's a particular site that we always like to go and visit. It's called Angel Oak. Have any of you ever been to Angel Oak off the coast of Charleston? It's a beautiful place to go. And there's a picture of Angel Oak. Angel Oak is reported to be one of the oldest and largest live oak trees in the entire United States. When you go to visit Angel Oak, it's absolutely incredible. The wingspan is unbelievable. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. It is so old and the wingspan of this tree is so wide that they actually have to have props at the very ends of the branches to hold it up because they're so heavy and old and and wide in in this span. And we love to go see Angel Oak. And every time I see Angel Oak, I'm reminded of this particular verse in Isaiah. That God, when he works in and through us, he, he works in us to be oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his glory. If we were to follow the the symbolism of a tree through Scripture, we'd find that it's a beautiful symbol of life itself. But when we think about that, we think about not only is it a symbol of life itself, but it's the symbol of what happens in our lives as the deep roots begin to to grow as we become followers of Christ and we begin to, to mature in our faith and in the knowledge of God and His Word. And as we develop those deeper roots of of maturity as followers of Christ, then we begin to, to grow stronger and our span of influence becomes wider and wider as we live our lives in Christ out for the purpose of his kingdom. And as we're doing that, we're continuing to grow in him, it's for the display of his glory, not for our own. Every time I stand before Angel Oak, I'm not amazed at what this tree has been able to do itself. I'm absolutely amazed at this incredible creation of God. And that's what he promises happens in and through us. We're we're plantings of the Lord for the display of his glory. And when we think about that, that's where the strength of living in community comes in for us. This particular angel oak has withstood, it has withstood hurricanes and tropical storms and heat 
and bug infestation. I mean, it has withstood every possible imaginable attack that you could have upon a tree like this. And it's withstood them throughout all of this test of time. And I look at that and I think, how, how did this tree with such majestic beauty survive all of this time? And, and one of the reasons is because it's surrounded by a host of other trees. As I shared with you those statistics earlier on, one of the things that it's showing us is that many people who identify themselves as spiritual people still aren't connecting with the community of faith. But there's something to be said for that. In early chapters of the book of Acts, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread with one another. They, they lived life together in community. So many people today are, are identifying themselves as spiritual, but, but they're doing it with kind of a, a, a lone ranger mentality, wanting to do it all by themselves. I don't need the community of faith. And I want to tell you that we do. We need one another. We're, we're designed and created to live in community with one another so that we can help encourage and strengthen one another as we grow to be oaks of righteousness for the display of his glory. And it's important for us to gather in community like we're doing this morning then it's so important for us to be strengthened in this community so that we can go out and see Christ make a difference in our city and cities across the world. See, the prophet said they'll become oaks of righteousness for the glory of the Lord so that they will then in turn rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. It's great for us to come and to be strengthened in community like we do this morning. And it's so important. It's essential to the nurture of our faith. But we do that so that in turn we can scatter throughout this city and across cities across the world. So that we can see lives renewed and rebuilt and restored. Just as he's done in our own life. Our passion becomes renewed as we join with God in the privilege of seeing him work life change throughout his kingdom. And as we begin to see lives being changed here in our city, on our, on, on our campuses, as we begin to see lives being changed in our inner city areas and suburbs of, of Knoxville, we begin to see lives changed in cities across the United States and literally across the world, our passion starts to get fired again. Because we do see that God's doing a great work in and through the lives of his people. He is still the God of our lives. I opened with three stories. I told you about my friend, Dr. Young, and I told you about the snapshot of people across the United States, and I told you about my story. Let me tell you three more stories. Stories of those who have been renewed and restored and rebuilt. Hedginaldo lives in Belém, Brazil. I met Hedginaldo about 10 years ago, and in our second encounter with each other, Hedginaldo began to open up and tell me his story. Hedginaldo was living a life that was completely falling apart. He was addicted to alcohol and, and, and drugs. He was literally beating and abusing his wife and children. He couldn't find any employment and hold a steady job of any kind. His life was literally falling apart. Someone began to share with Hedginaldo the kind of change that Jesus Christ had made in their life 
and just begin to live it out before him, walking through life with him. Today, Hedge and Aldo is one semester away from finishing seminary training in Belém, Brazil, and is serving as a pastor of one of the congregations that the church he, he joined when he accepted Christ has started in another community where people do not know Jesus Christ and do not have a church. And Hedginaldo and his wife, whom he used to abuse, are leaders in this church, organizers in this church, seeing it being raised up in this invasion area. And Hedginaldo's children, who once feared for their life every time dad came home, are playing in the praise band for the church where Hedginaldo preaches every Sunday. That'll renew your passion. Let me tell you about Donna, who lives right here in the United States. Donna had at one point believed that God had called her to to go to seminary in her life. And before she could ever get to seminary, she became pregnant, was not married to the man whom she was in a relationship. She ended up not marrying him and ended up marrying someone else. And the whole family situation was very difficult and strained for them early on. Donna sat with me one day and said, I thought God had a plan for my life, but I've made some choices that have completely destroyed that. Does God have a plan B? As I began to sit and talk with Donna, we said, well, whether you look at it as plan B or coming back onto his plan A, whatever you want to look at it, is I know this. I know God's not through with you. Today, Donna is finishing up online classes in theology in Christian social ministry so that she can step into the lives of other people who wonder the same thing. Because of my choices, is God's plan over for me? Is it, is it never to be fulfilled again? So that she can step into their lives and walk with them and help them understand that, no, God's in the, in the business of renewing our lives and restoring and then rebuilding them. The third story is my own. From a guy who was going through the motions of being a pastor just to exist because I didn't know, I couldn't quit, but I didn't know if I could go on. To a guy who stands before you today saying, my passion for, for the God of this city has never burned any hotter than it does today. Are there frustrations? Absolutely. Are there disappointments? You bet. Are there setbacks and discouragement? Every single day. I know the promise that God has made to his people. That's three stories of lives that have been rebuilt, lives that have been restored, lives that have been renewed. Because you see, that's what God does. Robert Linthicum wrote in his book, The City of God, what it is for us to understand that God is the God of our cities today and of our lives. Robert Linthicum writes, This is the underlying question facing the church in the city. How far has the kingdom of God become embodied and made real in the city's people of God? God's primary intention for the city is to bring God's kingdom into that city. To permeate its political, its economic, and its religious structures and to transform the lives of its inhabitants, its residents. To eliminate evil and to place over that city 
Not a brooding angel, but a Christ who would gather the city to himself. That's God's intention for the city. That is my desire for this city. That God would be the God of this city.
Ezekiel 48.35 makes this prophetic claim. And the name of the city from that time on will be, the Lord is there. I wonder if that prophecy could come to fruition for us today. That right here in Knoxville, that in cities across the United States, literally in cities across the world, the name Jesus might be the name of the city right now today that people would know our city as that's a city where God is there and that because of what he does in and through us that as he takes us beyond the walls of our churches into our cities and into cities across our nation and literally into cities across the world that because of what he's doing in us and through us and as us the cities where we go would be impacted they would be different and that people would say God's there in that city city that from now on will be called the Lord is there that's my passion is it yours this morning we want to give you an opportunity to respond to that maybe God's been writing a new chapter in your life as I shared this morning only you know what he's writing in your life right now only you know what chapter you're living Maybe God's beginning to write something new in in his story that he's writing through your life. And the chapter he's writing for you right now is, yes, I, I want to be living in that kind of passion for the God who's the God of this city. I want to, I want to invite you to be able to respond to that in just a moment. I think Joe will be standing here to receive you. And if you want to respond and, and have someone to share what God's doing in your life or to pray with you about that. Maybe the response that you're making this morning is to enter into that that experience with Jesus Christ. To understand what it means for him to make your life brand new. Not just to make your bad life good, to make your dead life alive. Joe would be glad to share with you how, how you can walk that journey with Christ. Some of you may be looking for a community, as I shared before. We're designed to live in community. Maybe you're looking for a community where you can live out this passion together. Calvary would be a great community of faith for you to do that in. A community that gathers to exalt God, to, to be restored and rebuilt so that we can go out into the city. And I know you do. You go out into the city to make a difference, to make people's lives different. This would be a great community of faith for you to be a part of. Some of you may just 
want to deal with God either alone or with someone. Joe will be here to pray with you. The altar area, the steps are open for you to come and just spend some time in prayer if you'd like. Probably someone that would join you in that prayer. God is kind of writing this new story in your life, putting this new chapter together for you. It would be a great way for you to respond to that this morning and let someone walk with you as he writes the next line. We want to invite you to do that right now. We're going to stand together sing. You respond as God urges you this morning. Oh,